love my dog Wolfie, but what I don't love is the burn marks that appear in the lawn everywhere he's lifted his leg. That's why I'm really glad to have found a completely natural solution to the problem of those burn marks on the grass. Dog Rocks. And thanks to Dog Rocks for supporting this episode of On The Ledge. Dog Rocks are so easy to use. Just pop them in your pet's water bowl and you should start to see the difference on your lawn, shrubs and hedges in three to five weeks. Dog Rocks deliver to the US, Canada, the UK and Europe. And they're endorsed and used by vets, pets and their parents worldwide. So to get 15% off your first order of Dog Rocks, visit dogrocks.com and enter the voucher code JANEP. That's J-A-N-E-P. Dog Rocks are a totally natural product with no side effects and they don't change the pH balance of your pet's urine. So for 15% off your first order, visit dogrocks.com and enter the voucher code JANEP. Welcome to On The Ledge Podcast. My name is Jane Perone, but my school nickname was Botany. In this week's show, episode 142, we're talking about leaves, delving into the botany of the leaf. I talked to Professor Enrico Cohen of the John Innes Centre about why leaves are shaped as they are. By the way, prepare to have your mind absolutely blown by what Professor Cohen tells me. I offer up a little glossary about the names we give to plant shapes. Stephen from Plant Daddy Podcast joins me to answer a listener Q&A with a leafy theme. And last but not least, we meet listener Michaela. Big shout out to Vicky and the catchily titled PBG83BB7BA for leaving me reviews on Podbean saying how much they enjoy On The Ledge. And to Nicola and Rosalie who both became Patreon subscribers this week and to Craig who gave me a donation on code-fi.com. You are all the finest of fine people and I salute you. You can't see that, but I am actually saluting you. Thank you so much for everything that you do to support On The Ledge. And if you want to show the show a bit of love, then why not leave a review on your pod app of choice, phone a friend and tell them about the show. Or if you're feeling flush, bung me a quid or two on PayPal, co-fi or Patreon. When it comes to leaf talk, and God knows I love a bit of leaf talk, there are a lot of terms bandied around that you may or may not be familiar with. I'm going to run through some of them now just to give you an idea of the range of terminology that you can use to describe leaves. I mean, why bother? You can say, well, a leaf is round or it's pointy or it's holy. Why bother with all these specialist terms? Well, part of the reason is that as you get more into this hobby, no doubt you'll start reading up online and in books about plants and you'll find these terms start to come up. 
And learning these terms just helps to enhance your understanding of what you're reading. So what are the, some of the terms that you're likely to come across? Well, let's start at the very basic level with the leaf. What makes up the structure of the leaf? Well, the lamina is the blade of the leaf, the flat bit, the bit that we're possibly most interested in. And the stalky bit, well, that's the petiole. But do you remember, not all plants have petioles. Some of them join straight onto the stem. And it's an adaptation that often saves the plant some water. And listener Bobby reminded me of another useful pair of words when describing leaves, and that's abaxial and adaxial. Yep, you have to have your teeth in when you say those. So the upper surface of the leaf, that's the adaxial, and the underside, that's the abaxial. Again, you might come across that one when you are reading about plants, and that just helps you to know what is what. And then there's a whole set of words just describing the shape of a leaf. The first thing to notice about a leaf when you're looking at it is, is it simple or compound? Now, simple, well, that's fairly obvious. It just means the leaf is one whole thing together rather than having some complex kind of design. Whereas a compound leaf, well, that's formed by a number of leaflets that join together and then attach onto the stem. And there's a couple of different kinds of compound leaves you're probably going to come across in the houseplant world. Probably the most notable is compound palmate. Now, and as is often the case, the clue's in the name. A compound palmate leaf looks a bit like a hand. So if you think of a horse chestnut leaf or in the houseplant world, a Scheffler leaf, you are along the right lines. And you can, of course, get palmate simple leaves. Uh, think Fatsia japonica, for example. That's a great example of a leaf that looks like a hand, but it's simple. It's all one leaf. The other form of compound leaf is the pinnately compound leaf. And I guess the best example I can think of this one is the sensitive plant Mimosa pudica, where the leaflets are all arranged in a straight line. Out in the garden, the best example probably is a rose. Some of the names are quite poetic. I rather like peltate, which means a leaf where the petiole joins not the edge of the leaf, but somewhere in the centre, like a nasturtium leaf, if you can picture that. I also like hastate, which means a spear-shaped leaf. So think of uh, philodendrum hastatum being the perfect example. Again, the Latin's telling you something about the leaf. And then we have the wonderful lanceolate, which means quite simply shaped like a lance. So in other words, it, it comes to a point at the end. So think about your busy lizzies, your impatience, classic lanceolate leaves. There are loads more linear. Well, that's the spider plants leaves right there. It's fairly obvious. And then you've got something like Hoya kerii with its obcordate leaves, which means they're heart shaped with the stem at the pointy end rather than the other end. If you want to go deeper into leaf shape names, then do check out the show notes where I'll include some links to some wonderful pictures and diagrams of different types of leaf shapes, and you can spend hours learning them all. But how is a leaf's shape determined? And why is there so much variation? Well, this was where I needed to call in an expert. Hello, I'm Enrico Cohen. I'm a research scientist at the John Innes Centre, um, where we try and study and understand how plant forms are produced, how leaves grow, how flowers get their shapes. I often look at around my 
growing collection of houseplants and just wonder at the amazing variety of leaf shapes that are demonstrated, even in my relatively modest collection. Do you have any insight for us about why certain leaves are shaped as they are? What what is it? What are the factors that determined leaf shape and indeed leaf size? Leaves are fascinating in terms of the, as you say, the variety of shapes that are, are produced. And one of the big questions, which we still don't know all the answers to, is how these shapes are generated. If you think about man-made shapes, we have a notion of how we make a spoon or a plate because there's an external hand, our, our own hand, that guides the process. But with a leaf, as with most biological structures, there is no external hand. It all has to figure out how to produce these shapes uh, internally. And... Um, just as, in a sense, you could imagine how just a, we use the musical scale, a single musical scale can produce all the different music that we hear, or from symphonies to concertos to pop music, and yet it's the same notes, it's the way in which they're organized and put together that generates this, this amazing um, variety of music. In the same way, leaves have a set of basic ingredients and it's the combination of these ingredients that allows so many different forms to be generated. So although we marvel at the variety of forms, underlying that are some basic rules that get combined in all sorts of glorious ways to produce the shapes we see. Are there any particular kinds of leaf that are particularly useful to study when you're trying to understand uh, how leaf shape works? You're absolutely right. We can't study all these. We study a few to understand the basic principles. And one of these uh, is the kind of workhorse of plant genetic and developmental studies. And that's a, a weed called Arabidopsis thaliana. And because it, rapid, it cycles rapidly, um, we can study how something like its shape of leaf is generated. The other plant that we have been spending some time on is a carnivorous plant, uh, Utricularia gibber. Um, this is what's known as a bladderwort, and it has a remarkable cup-shaped leaves that can trap small animals. It doesn't have roots. It uh, gets its nutrients by basically trapping these small animals, and we study that shape as well. So we study two extreme shapes, as it were, a flat leaf of this weed and how you, how you go from a flat leaf into the more intricate shape that traps animals. And in general, you find that the more complicated shapes in leaves are often associated with interactions with other organisms, um, like the, the pitcher plant or Venus fly traps. All these things are quite elaborate in their mechanism and shape because they're dealing with animals. They're dealing with enticing animals to their doom in most cases. Just as a flower, you have lots of different complicated shapes of flowers because they're also enticing animals. The, the bees or pollinators in that case whereas many leaves are flat uh, because that's to do with photosynthesis so if uh, or maintaining their nutrition. So if a leaf is mainly involved in photosynthesis, you tend to get a flattish shape, but the outline can vary, whereas if a leaf is being adapted to interact with a, an animal, you often encounter a more intricate shape. But all those shapes we're discovering are produced by these common rules uh, combined in different ways. 
I, I have this rather naive thing that the the larger a leaf, the the greater amount of shade the plant likes because I, because it's trying to collect more light if it's by being bigger. I, I mean, I'm sure that's a gross oversimplification, but is there something in that? Oh, there absolutely is something in it. The interesting question is, if you're a plant, is it better to produce one big leaf or lots of little leaves? Because you will get the same surface area in both cases. It's a question, do you go for one, do you put all your eggs in one basket? In fact, there are some plants that only have one leaf. I think they grow on cliffs and um, they just grow from the base and the leaf gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But the problem with that strategy is sometimes that in terms of the circulation, if you want to capture, interact with the atmosphere, you want to, it's often better to have multiple spaced leaves uh, rather than having them just a single leaf produced at one level. And so there's issues like that gas exchange and um, raising the leaf above a certain height in order to outcompete with others. So uh, the shape and number of leaves, not just the size, it's also the number of leaves, is quite a complicated thing. And what the best strategy is can vary from one situation to another, which is why you'll find, if you just step into your garden or in, in a wild meadow, you'll find plants with all sorts of different shapes and sizes of leaves. And that's because of these different trade-offs. Do you, do, what do you go for? Do you go for size or number? Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Isn't it? Because I suppose you've got something like the sensitive plant, Mimosa pudica, which has got all those tiny little leaflets, which I imagine if you lose one or two of those, that's not the end of the world. But if an animal comes along and pulls off one giant leaf off a plant, that's taken off half its foliage. That's a more more uh, severe attack. Um, that's really interesting. Is there any way of when you're looking at a plant and looking, presumably you can calculate total leaf surface and make some comparison and say, well, okay, this plant's got, you know, 10 times the number of leaves as this plant, but actually its surface area for photosynthesis is actually greater overall because it because it's just got so many leaves. That's right. I mean, they can go further than that. People can simulate the growth of the plant so that you can take into account the shading the angle of the leaves and so forth. And so you can calculate the sort of photosynthetic capability of different architectures and different strategies. And there are people, we don't do, we don't do that type of research ourselves, but there are people that, that, that that's their main concern, trying to understand how these different canopies interact and what the effective amount of light that you're getting is. And also it may be in some cases, um, and, and, a given leaf will only be able to extract a certain fraction of the light that passes through it so that some light will pass through one leaf and then hit the leaf below it. So the first leaf doesn't take everything. The next leaf can take some. So it's quite a complicated calculation, but people do uh, study those things. Our interest more is in how you generate the leaf to begin with. What is What are the principles by which it, it constructs itself? rather than necessarily the ad adaptive features, which are a consequence of that. So it's a bit like trying to understand how a fertilized egg turns itself, turned itself into you, for example, versus how you function every day in terms of your job and your constraints. And clearly the two are connected, because if you hadn't developed inside your mother, you wouldn't be doing all these things. But on the other hand, we can separate them out to some extent and try and understand what are the basic principles of construction and how that then relates to function. So our research is much more concerned with how you are formed uh, more than necessarily how you function. 
One of the things that people seem to get very confused about is quite frequently one of the key plants of, of, the, of the moment, the Swiss cheese plant, mm. Monstra deliciosa. They kind of have this idea that a leaf is going to grow and then it's going to emerge and then it's suddenly going to start developing holes in it rather than what actually happens, which is the leaf, even though it's a, a sort of un, in its unfurled state, is the shape it's going to be once it's out, if you see what I mean. But presumably because that, that is all determ- predetermined in the, the the gene of the plant and it's already set in stone and therefore people get a bit disappointed when you say, well, no, that, that particular leaf isn't going to change. It's not going to suddenly develop fenestration. Your future leaves might become fenestrated, but that leaf is, is going to stay that shape <laughs> forever. And people are sometimes a bit disappointed by that. But I guess that taps into what you're saying about that those decisions have already been made far further back than the leaf unfurling. Uh, That's absolutely right. The form and uh, shape of the leaf is established very early on. Um, Monstera, the case you gave, is actually a very interesting one with the holes um, because they arise through a process called cell death, programmed cell death. Um, So if you look at your your hands, you see the gaps between your fingers. Well, those gaps Originally, when you were an embryo, there was sort of tissue between your fingers. And gradually, the bits between your fingers died. Those cells were programmed to die. If they don't die, you would end up with webbed hands, like a duck. So there's a specific set of genes involved in killing the cells uh, between your digits. And that kind of creates these holes between your fingers, so you can think of it that way. Now, that is unusual in plants as they develop. But some leaves do do this, and uh, that's why the monster of the cheese plants look so weird compared to many other leaves, because they're one of the few species that undergo this cell death. So very early on in their development, a leaf, certain cells will die as a consequence of uh, gene activity, and that creates these holes. Um, but that is all established quite early in development. You won't see, as you say, unless you go and tear your leaf physically, uh, the leaf won't spontaneously generate holes once it's come out. Right, and again, this is another one that people seem to get confused about. Is and I and I had I only sort of this only occurred to me recently that a leaf once a leaf is damaged, it's not like human skin. It doesn't really repair itself. It'll stay damaged for forever. But the nature of leaves being as they are and plants growing is that the plant will kind of grow past the problem and grow some new leaves. So that it has a different strategy for dealing with damage than, than us as humans, we do. I, I, that sounds ridiculous, but I have had people say to me, oh, look at this leaf, it's damaged, will it will it heal? And you, you kind of have to say, well, no, <laughs> that, that your cat has scratched it and that's, that's the way it's going to be until some new leaves come and, and you don't notice it anymore. It's not in the least ridiculous. It's a fascinating uh, feature about plants versus animals. You see, if we have a problem... If we see somebody sort of coming with a knife towards us or some sharp teeth, we run away or we sort of, we have an option of avoidance. Now, a plant cannot avoid, okay? It's stuck in its place. Um, so how do you deal with it? Well, one way a plant can deal with it is to be of a sort of taste unpleasant so that the thing doesn't want to eat. But if that fails and you are eaten, uh, then uh, how do you deal with it? And what plants do is they have what are called meristems, these are small growing regions 
um, that can regenerate the lost part. So it's not that the, so if you take a good example, the experts at this are, is grasses. Now you go out and you mow your lawn and just think, just imagine if you were a, a, a blade of grass or a grass plant, this every week, this relentless sawing of your parts occurs. But actually what happens is because the, these plants keep their meristems, their growing tips below the, cut, the cutting level of the blade, they can easily regrow and replace what's been taken, which is an, uh, which is an adaptation to herbivores which we exploit when we uh, grow our lawns. So um, that's a remarkable strategy. It's, it's why, for example, grasses are so successful uh, worldwide is because they have this ability to keep their um, growing points, as it were, uh, quite low down. Other plants have their growing points higher up so that when you cut them, they don't grow from the base. They will grow from the next uh, branches, branch points down. Uh, but grasses are particularly good at this regeneration game. There's really a regrowing game um, that derives precisely from the fact that plants can't move and therefore or can't uh, translocate and so they have this strategy. There are a few animals, by the way, that can regenerate, like uh, salamanders. If you cut cut uh, limbs off these things, if you're so inclined, then they can regenerate them. Um, but humans, vertebrates in general, have a very poor uh, regeneration capability. Um, and so uh, we also have to um, defend ourselves by avoidance because once, you know, we lose a limb, that's it. We can't, re- we can't grow another one. But a plant, well, you might feel sorry for the plant being chopped relentlessly, but on the other hand, it has this a relentless ability to grow back as well, which is, which is fantastic. It is. And this is something we sometimes do discuss on on the ledge because that the location of the meristematic tissue is is kind of important to us as houseplant growers in terms of understanding how we can propagate different plants uh, in terms of if you haven't got that material, then the plant's not going to be able to grow another type of uh, cell, i.e. roots from a from a stem or from a leaf or whatever and sometimes it's quite sad when you see people trying to <laughs> trying to propagate things that, that won't work the plants vary in their ability to switch meristems so geraniums for example you just need to put in water and what was a stem will start to sprout roots that means that it's um essentially what it can produce a new it can reprogram its meristem so rather than producing shoots they can now start to produce roots. So plants vary in that ability. Some plants are less capable of doing that unless you dip them in hormone. So sometimes you have to give them a hormone powder, dip them in that, and that can help them then produce um, rooting meristems. So not only is it that plants have meristems, they can also sometimes switch the type of meristem. So whether you generate a a shoot or, or a root. It's very clever stuff, this. It's amazing. It, I never cease to be astounded by the amazing thing that, things that plants can do right in front of our eyes, which, <laughs> which is very, very special. Is there anything else we haven't talked about, Enrico, that we should cover on the, on, in terms of your research or leaves? I know we haven't gone tremendously deep into what you've actually done, but it's really interesting to hear about how leaf shape is determined by what the plants are actually trying to get from the world in terms of uh, the, the, the carnivorous, carnivory versus... Uh, photosynthesis is there anything else we need to mention though there's a couple of things that maybe we could say one is when you say that plants are mazes by their 
in sort of intelligence in a way, their ability to do the, all these amazing things. It's maybe partly a reflection of the fact that when we look at the world, we're driven by the assumption that movement is the most important sign of of life and intelligence. We're mobile animals and we judge people by their actions. And since plants don't exhibit that behavior, or the, some plants do move at a, at a rapid rate, um, but a lot of them move much more slowly and or grow much more slowly than we can see by eye. We have this rather condescending view of plants that they're rather kind of, because they, they don't move, they can't be very smart in what they do. Uh, but in fact, they're, in, they're amazing. They can produce the most amazing structures and they exhibit their sort of intelligence, inverted quotes, through the variety of different structures that they generate that we could not generate. I mean, we we can't grow chairs, for example. We can assemble chairs. We can't take a seed, put it in the ground, and it will turn into a um, three-piece suite. We can't. It's, it's, it, you'd think that was miraculous if somebody could do that. Just imagine if you went into a shop and they give you a, a, a seed and you took it home and it, you put it, you water it, and it turns into an iPhone. That would be viewed as a complete miracle. But that miracle is happening around us all the time, every time a plant constructs itself. And so it is a marvel, and we sometimes take it for granted because we're so familiar with it, um, but it's something that just continually uh, continually amazes. And, our re- and that's really the basis of our research, is trying to understand how they do this, how they do this remarkable thing. And one insight, one way of thinking about it, is a bit like the musical analogy I was giving you earlier that just as an orchestra can produce an amazing piece of music by the coordinated activity of the players so plants produce these amazing structures through the coordinated activity of their cells or their cellular components Uh, whereas an orchestra the key thing is what instrument you're playing what tune you're playing with a plant the key question the cell has to ask is how much do i grow this way or that way, in this direction, or that direction. And as a, as a leaf grows from its bud, that's what's going on. There's an orchestrated pattern of growth in all these cells that is coordinated between them. And there are also kind of tensions. There can be tensions between them, just as you can have tension between the sort of string instruments and the woodwind uh, in terms of the tunes they're playing, and that can be a creative uh, tension. So as a plant grows, certain cells will be growing one way, some will be trying to grow another way, and that results in bends and and, uh, waves and all sorts of shapes and undulations. And so really when you're looking at a leaf, you're looking at the sort of (laughs) symphonic output from this um, orchestrated pattern. And we're trying to understand the principles of how that music is played, as it were. As you're talking about that, I was thinking about the the particular um, drama, uh, the, the 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 genetic drama that must be going on, therefore, in the leaves of uh, any any sort of leaves that show chimeral variegation. I know when I speak to botanists, sometimes who grow house plants inside their houses, they're very they don't like um, variegated plants. I think they get they get a bit sort of um, find them a bit much. But that that I find fascinating, the fact that you've got, well, in my ba- very basic understanding, you've got two different sets of genes kind of competing in a single leaf to create this um, these incredible patterns that you get on something like a variegated monster, which 
kind of takes that to another level for me, another level of complication and uh, amazement that, that plants actually manage to, to put out leaves which have got so much going on. Yeah, I think that's a very good illustration of the fact that even with a single leaf, you're, you're able to visually see the two layers because when you look at one of these variegated leaves, you see the white or the, and the green parts. And that's visually telling us that there are these two thing, two types of tissue that are somehow coordinated. That you still generate a leaf at the end of it, even though these things are perhaps growing slightly differently, the white and the green part. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just what we see by eye. It's like we're getting a privileged view in that case. What's actually happening is every leaf is doing that uh, through internal mechanisms, creating all these differences and patterns but we just don't see them and what we see is the outcome we see oh look that has leaf has a certain shape this leaf has a different this one bends this one has a lovely jagged outline and so forth we look at the outcome but we miss the drama which absolutely drama is a very good word we miss that genetic drama that's going on all the time as the cells grow and interact during the development of the bud well, I'm not going to look at a new leaf on any of my houseplants in quite the same way again, Enrico. That was really fascinating. Uh, thank you very much for sharing that. And um, I'm going to go and look at some leaves now with, with renewed, <laughs> even more renewed fascination. OK, well, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much to Enrico Cohen, who provided such an interesting insight into leaf shape there. If you want to check out Enrico and what the John Innes Centre does, then do look at the show notes where I will include some relevant links. And now it's time for question of the week, which is to do with a very particular kind of modified leaf, the pitcher plant or nepenthes. And this question, this plea for help, came from Rachel. Her pitcher plant is in a bright bathroom with an east facing skylight, but very little sun. And the room gets steamy from the bath and Rachel tries not to let the plant dry out. She says it's always been healthy and throws out new leaves regularly, but no pitchers. And she's had it for a couple of years. I am not a carnivorous plant expert by any means. So I called on someone who is. And that someone was Stephen from the Plant Daddy podcast. Over to Stephen to commiserate with Rachel. I, first of all, I feel for this listener. I have been in this situation before, right? You definitely buy the plant wanting the pictures. That's kind of the, I think, the main part of the show for most people. Um, there's a bit of a checklist that we tend to run down when this is happening. First of all, this is a gorgeous plant. It's huge. Jane, was uh, you were nice enough to send me pictures. So yeah, wow, nice job overall, right? I think this 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 person probably has eight out of 10 pieces correct. First thing I would change here, I would increase the light. I think many of us living in northern latitudes, so often we read or we're told to keep these out of direct light to, you know, keep these in sort of understory conditions where they grow, but we have to remember that these are from equatorial regions. The sun is so much more intense there. So where we live, I wouldn't be afraid to put these in more intense light. So that's probably the issue. I would say 50% chance at least. Increase the light, you're going to see picturing after a month or two. And I think, you know, keeping it in a bathroom, that I think that makes sense. We think of these as tropical plants. They kind of look leafy and tropical. I wouldn't worry about humidity so much. I have mine picturing in uh, as low as, I would say, 35% humidity. 
just as long as they get that sun, I think that's kind of the key component. And again, you can't bake them. I wouldn't put this in a, you know, south or west facing window that gets, you know, uninterrupted light all day, but maybe something a bit more than the east facing window that I think the uh, the question mentions. So I would start there. Stephen, I love the fact that you're using picture as a verb. Picturing. I, oh, <laughs> I'm loving yeah. that. Is that a kind of response yeah. community thing that people say, oh, I'm just picturing right now? Um, <laughs> or is that your yes. own invention? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, guilty. Yes, that is one that is tossed around a lot. So, okay, yeah, thank you for translating. Yes, we get people say that. that I must not be not be reading the right Reddit threads or something. I don't know where these where these CP people are gathering. But anyway, that's interesting. Well, that's a really good point. I don't think I've been in many bathrooms that have anywhere near decent light really there's I mean most bathrooms are pretty gloomy aren't they when my husband was doing his PhD and I lived in his place for a while he lived in a like vicarage which was ancient and falling down that had a really nice light bathroom because it was a really big window it probably wasn't even a bathroom in the 17th century or whatever but but um yeah I mean it also had like fungus growing up from the ceiling and you know like a dead bat trapped in the door so you know it wasn't your average bathroom but most bathrooms mine included they're pretty gloomy I mean I guess if you could find some way of getting a grow light on that plant within the bathroom that could work but I mean bathrooms and electricity it's not always easy Yeah, you know, um, it might just be a place that's suited for another plant, honestly. I mean, you're so lucky to have a bathroom with any light, Mm. right? But maybe there's some humidity loving plant that, you know, can deal with a little bit less, a little bit less light. And really, if you look at that plant, it's gorgeous, you know, if you don't mind the pictures not being there. (laughs) So yeah, well, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? It's just people I can imagine the visitors going, oh, that's an amazing plant in the bathroom. And then what is it? And you kind of go, it's a pitch Mm -hmm. plant. Yeah. <laughs> where's the pictures so yeah. yeah that that's the only downside and so so light i mean is there anything else to say about this plant in terms of encouraging pictures is it like a seasonal thing can it, i mean i guess yeah. as you say it's equatorial so there's not really that much seasonality going on presumably in its home environment so presumably you can prompt pictures at any time by getting that light right yeah, I mean, I think unfortunately there are a couple other wrinkles. Uh, I think if that if those those first steps don't work, I think they will. But if they don't, you can also try letting the temperature dip at night. This also might be dip- difficult in the bathroom, um, but I think a lot of people find that maybe when the summers get warm, um, pitchers sometimes can die and pitching can stop a little bit. They can rest often what we buy in stores, these kind of hardier species are highland nepenthes. And they're highland and lowland species. If you kind of get more into the hobby, um, you'll find that. Maybe you're familiar already, you know, listeners and and you, Jane. But um, these highland species, the temperature really dips at night in their native conditions. So they're used to that. They tend to grow better that way. Um, People find here um, in Seattle, kind of, you know, in northern part of the United States, that um, in the wintertime, when those temperatures dip more, um, pitchering can improve. Sometimes they rest a bit in the summer when the the temperature is higher and more stable, stably high like that. So I, I think that's kind of the third lever I would try. Again, I would try light first. But as you kind of go down the list, that's something that you could try as well. 
Okay, that's great advice. And hopefully some picturing will be occurring. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be using that in a conversation today. I don't know when or how, but I'm going to be putting that into a conversation. Well, it's really nice to speak to you. And thank you for uh, giving us your wisdom. And hopefully picturing will occur shortly. Okay, yeah. And really um, to that to that listener, gorgeous plant, uh, I have a lot of hope. So I, I think it'll work out. And now we hear from listener Michaela. Hi there on the ledge. My name is Michaela. I'm a listener from Chicago here in the US. And I am so excited to be a part of the Meet the Listener series. I have been uh, a listener of On the Ledge since right near the very beginning. Um, I found it through uh, a couple of other planty friends that told me about it, and it has become one of my absolute favorite podcasts. I get excited for every episode every week, and it really is just one of the highlights of my week. Um, I love just being able to listen to Jane share all of her knowledge and all of the experts that she has on just share their planty knowledge as well, and it just makes me feel like a much better plant parent <laughs> from learning all of the things that I can through the podcast. So I'm very excited to be a part of it. Question one. There's a fire and all your plants are about to burn. Which one do you grab as you escape? Oh, this is a really hard question for me. I have a lot of plants. I live in a very small apartment and I have plants in pretty much every nook and cranny that I can cram them into. But I'd say that if I had to pick only one, uh, oof, I would probably pick my Monstera Deliciosa. I know it's kind of the most commonly loved plant, but it is my oldest plant and it is my largest plant. I've had it for almost three years now and it is just huge and full and beautiful and I've watched it grow from when it was a baby little cutting. Uh, so I would definitely take that. Question two. What is your favorite episode of On The Ledge? My favorite episode of On The Ledge? I have a few. Um, I Obviously, I am a huge fan of Hoyas, so I love the Hoya episode. I also really love uh, the episode that Jane did about the Saxifraga stolonifera. Uh, that is a plant that I don't hear people talking about a lot, and I'm absolutely in love with it. It's one of my favorite types of plants. I have a couple myself. Um, and that was a really fun episode where she just kind of talked about it because she wanted to. Like, she didn't have... Nobody asked her to talk about that one, and I really liked that episode. Uh, and I always enjoy um, the episodes where she talks to experts, especially the ones where she was talking to the guy from Savage Garden about the carnivorous plants. That was another really amazing episode. Question three. Which Latin name do you say to impress people? Um, the Latin name that I use the most, I would say, is probably Trotascantia. I love saying Trotascantia. It's just a fun word. Um, and I'm not really a huge fan of the common term for that plant, the wandering Jew or whatever. That's not a great name, and I think that it's fun to educate people about the real name of it. Plus, it's just much more fun to say to me. And I have told many a few plant friends <laughs> what the actual name for it is. Question four. 
Crassulation, acid metabolism, or gut ocean? This is a hard one for me. I have a few tropical plants that I've seen have gutation on them in the past, and I think it's really cool, but it does kind of make a mess. Again, I live in an apartment and it doesn't, it gets all over the place. So I'm gonna have to say crassulation, acid metabolism. I have a few plants in my bedroom that I have read or learned through the podcast or other planty friends are very good for cleaning the air at nighttime, and I have a few in there that are, uh, I think my sleeping has really improved because of it. Question five. Would you rather spend £200 on a variegated monster or £200 on 20 interesting cacti? That's also a really hard one for me because I am a huge fan of succulents and cacti. I even have a few succulent tattoos, <laughs> but I would probably go for the variegated monstera. I love monstera a lot <laughs> and I already have probably way more cacti than I would possibly have room for. So I would say I would go for the variegated monstera and go for a little bit of a splurge. Thank you, Michaela, and great to meet another fan of the strawberry saxifrage. Coming up next Friday, do your plants suffer from the fluff? I'm talking about that heinous pest, the mealybug. I am going to help you lick this problem into shape. And if you listen to next Friday's show, you will find out how, because it's a mealybug special. That's all for this week, though. So have a fantastic week with your plants and keep your ledges well dusted. you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops and Water in the Creek by Josh Woodward and the ad music was Dill Pickles by the Hefto Banjo Orchestra all tracks are licensed under Creative Commons see the show notes at janeperone.com for details <laughs> <laughs>